and most importantly, welcome to DirtOnDirt.com. This is the Rigsby Report podcast brought to you by Kaiser Manufacturing for the week of March 2nd. March? Really? How did that happen? How how is it possible that it is March already? I literally feel like I was just at the World Finals like two seconds ago. Anyway, the week of March 2nd is here. And also, am I nuts? Or as you get older, does time just seem to go by so much faster? I felt like when I was 18 years old, uh, a week took an eternity. Just uh, a week was forever, right? Now it feels like a year blows by in the blink of an eye. I know part of it for me was for the first 48 days of 2020, I was on the road for 41 of them. So all but a week there. That doesn't help. But I am settling back into the Dirt on Dirt and Flow Studios here nicely. Uh, People don't realize, too, when you travel as much as we do, how much more you can get done at home. It's it's just uh it, it, it's it's hard to describe when you're out on the road in Tampa and, and Phoenix and everywhere else. Fun places to be, uh, but your your major productivity gets done here at home. It's our first podcast back since the madness of Speed Weeks has calmed down a little bit. I got a chance to get my feet under me, which is good. I'm kind of starting to see the landscape of the racing season and my role as the GM of Flow Racing and and everything at DoD pretty well. And I'm really excited. Uh, I actually had the F word written into my notes here. I don't know. I mean, I guess I can say it, right? I, how about I'll just say this? I'm really freaking excited. Uh, that's not the F word I had about this episode. I mean, if you are building a Mount Rushmore of dirt late model racing, this guy has to be on it, right? CJ Rayburn has got to be on this list. My four would be Bloomquist, Moyer, CJ Rayburn and Earl Baltus. I'm sure you could make a case for the Larry Moores or Jeff Purvises of the world, but those guys, to me, they've shaped dirt late model racing as much as any four human beings on the planet have. Just impact on the sport, faces of the sport, uh, as much as anybody. I'm not sure there's an argument, really. Is there? I mean, I put it out on Twitter this week, and people are trying to argue with me about this. Well, there's there's two Mount Rushmores. There's the driving Mount Rushmore, and there's the... No, there's one Mount Rushmore. If people never seen Mount Rushmore before, there's only one. There's only one. There's only four faces on it. So you only get to choose one. Uh, some of the suggestions that I got on Twitter were just absolute nonsense for Mount Rushmore. Like, that's the thing that people have to realize about late model racing. It's like when I riff on the Hall of Fame. This isn't about like some guy that raced at your track that won a bunch of races or some guy from South Carolina or Nebraska that won a bunch of races around there. This is like the Hall of Fame, not the Hall of Average or the Hall of Very Good. And this is the Mount Rushmore, like the four most impactful people ever. I could go on and on about that. Uh, Rayburn and I, we've already done the interview, uh, just a hell of a conversation that I had with him. It was an hour, a full hour that I did with CJ. Uh, so when that starts pull up a chair and uh, and soak it in because it is vintage CJ for for much of that hour. Some quick Rigsby thoughts before I get to Rayburn. Um, I've decided officially there's no replacing East Bay. We, we went into East Bay this year. There were 30. Think about that. There were 30 races left at East Bay. Five years times six, 30 races. We're down to 24. There's only 24 races left at East Bay. And I realize everyone goes on and on about how good the racing is there now. And it is good. I think part of the reason it is good is it's kind of a byproduct of how weird the tire combo plus the racetrack is. But either way, it's super entertaining. And you just realize there's no replacing it. 
Um, I know that the folks at Lucas and everywhere else down there are kind of looking for the next East Bay home. I just don't think there is one. Uh, not only the fact that East Bay is this legendary late model track, but there's so much to do in Tampa. Tampa is one of the you know 20 biggest, I think, 20 biggest cities in the United States, 25. There's just a million things to do. There's the beach, there's Disney, there's blah, 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 blah. There's just, there's just no replacing it. Uh, I, I just, I don't, I don't know what they're going to do. I know they've got some time to figure it out and I know they're looking, but I have, um, I have pretty strong concerns about that. Let's put it that way. That we're just, whether it's Ocala eventually, or it's an asphalt track turned dirt track or whatever it is, it is literally never going to be the same. Speed weeks will never be the same. I just hope we make it the four years left that we have. Another thought after speed weeks, there's like six good dudes, like six. My my argument about quarterback play in the NFL, I always say there's like five good quarterbacks, seven good quarterbacks in the NFL. It just seems to me there's like six or seven good drivers in the country right now. Shepard, Owens, Davenport, T-Mac, a few other guys. That's it. It, it. it could change. I know Speed Weeks doesn't dictate the entire season, but it feels to me like, yeah, there's like five or six good guys. And that's what we've got in our sport right now is just that amount of good drivers. And that's it. So uh, we'll see. I mean, we'll see when March and April roll around. But Brownstown and Atomic, I have a feeling one of those five or six guys are going to win those races. I started to hear this from some of the series guys too, especially there were no rainouts at all. Volusia, uh, Alltech, East Bay, no rainouts. Six nights at any tracks, too many now, I think. Uh, some of the series people on both series said that to me too. It used to be, we didn't race 110 times a year. We didn't race 12 months a year, so you could do six. Eh, no big deal. We'll start out with six. I am starting to hear from people that it might be too many. I think four or five. Take those Mondays off. Take those Mondays off. Uh, that might be enough. So keep an eye on that. I don't think East Bay is going to do it now if they're four-year countdown, but I think you may see it some of the other places. Something interesting for next year, Super Bowl Sunday. Yeah, Super Bowl is in Tampa next year, the day after East Bay ends. So this year they went East Bay, Alltech, Volusia. I think next year it's likely to go Gold Niles, Gold Niles, Alltech, East Bay. And they go, Lucas goes in a row that way. So Lucas would not take a day off. They have the day off after Gold Niles now. I don't think they'll take a day off next year. That's my guess. Because I don't think Alltech in Florida wants to race against the Super Bowl on that Sunday. So get your Tampa hotel rooms if you have not, because the Super Bowl, <laughs> the Super Bowl is in Tampa the day after East Bay ends. And uh, Derek Kessinger, I think, is taking the entire Dirt on Dirt staff, I think, is the plan next year. Suave is buying us all Super Bowl tickets. A couple quick post-Speed Weeks things, too. I see Shannon Buckingham posts on Facebook, I'm bored. I need to get back to racing. Dude, it's been like 14 days since Speed Weeks ended when you posted that. I guess these guys complain about racing too much, and then they just want to race all the time. You have Clarksville, Cherokee, and Modoc right after Speed Weeks. All of them were, you know, eh, eh. You know, Modoc was dusty. Clarksville was kind of one lane. Cherokee's Cherokee. I mean, have we ever had one of those races, those right after Speed Weeks events, the Clarksville, the Cherokees, the Modocs? Have any of them ever been just like, whoa? I- I'm trying to remember. I don't think so, right? And I'm not, I don't, I'm not talking about Atomic and Brownstown. Those are later and at Northern tracks, these Southern racetracks that try these right after speed weeks events, eh, typically they're just kind of there to shake the rust off. I think, uh, I don't think we, I, I don't know if we've had 25 of them, how many of them have been spectacular races? Not many, not many. I think it's just a product too. It's so cold. Still, the guys can't prep the tracks like they want to yada, yada, yada. I'm not saying the event should go away. I'm just saying that I don't think you're ever going to get one of those events and be like, damn, damn, that was good. I just, I don't know that's going to happen between the the set the the southern red clay have to start in the daytime racetracks right after speed weeks where it's still too cold out 
um, don't seem to be yielding a ton of fruitful racing. Let's put it that way. Anyway, people continue to tell me I talk too much in the open. So enough of that. Let's get to it. CJ Rayburn. But uh, first, uh, a word from Penske. Penske Racing Shocks offers the latest in shock technology. Penske Racing Shocks designs, develops, manufactures, and hand builds the highest performance suspension products for dirt late models. And we are proud to say that it is all done in the United States. That is Penske Racing Shocks. The cool thing about this podcast is that I'm getting to do stuff that I've wanted to do for a long time, but I'm getting to do it in an unfiltered way, and interviewing C.J. Rayburn literally might be at the top of that unfiltered list. So on the Integra Shocks and Springs hotline now is to me the godfather of modern dirt late model racing, C.J. Rayburn. C.J., it's a Tuesday morning at about 10 o'clock. First question, what is C.J. Rayburn up to on a Tuesday morning at about 10 o'clock right now? Well, we don't, you know, you got to work on problems, I guess. <laughs> you know, that's because uh, that puts a challenge in it. I've got this uh, little side-by-side Kawasaki. We blew the motor up in it. And I got Royce, he's in there, and they welded the case up. We're trying to put <laughs> this thing back together. And uh, it's very complicated. It's got a counterbalancer in it and everything. And uh, that's what we're working on now. And, you know, it's just about to whip both of them. <laughs> but, but you know what? We'll get it done some way. What time did you get up this morning to start this Kawasaki project? Uh, I get up at 7.30. Okay, so not too bad. I, I kind of pegged you maybe as the chicken going off at 5 a.m. kind of guy that you were up when the, the rooster was crowing. Not not quite? Well, I never was a real early morning person. I always worked till 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, racing, right? The racing life. And, so Yeah, and slept till 9 or 10. But in the last several years, I get up at 7.30, quarter late. I thought about a hundred different first questions that I had for you for this interview, but I wanted to start pretty simple. CJ, when you look at dirt late model racing in 2020, what do you see? Well, I don't know what I see. I can't, I can't figure out what I see. I do see that the cars are running slower. You know, it, 15 years ago, we run faster. 25 years ago, we run quicker. I was at East Bay, and the crate cars run about as fast as the Supers. The Supers look like they're running around there 200 mile an hour, but the stopwatch don't prove anything. So what do you think that means? What does that mean, you think? I don't. It means that I need to. That means it's put a question in my mind. Why is it doing that? I can't figure it out. How, How much time have you spent thinking about that, you think? too much <laughs> I, I can't fix it i don't have anybody to you know uh, you, you just need good drivers and stuff you know you know when we started building cars i don't know whether we're any better than anybody else's but we got some good drivers in them and i work at them hard and uh, and that's what you got to do and that's why rockets are good that guy works hard on them and, I mean, he puts his nose to the grindstone. You know, if you're going to beat him, you're going to have to work as hard as him or harder. And you're talking specifically about Mark, right? Mark Richards? Yeah, yeah. 
I say that all the time about Mark. People, because to me, he's the you know he's the next closest thing we've ever had to a CJ Rayburn, and the fact that he's you know he's he's built this chassis business. You're right, though. If you're going to do this, you got to be out there all the time, don't you? And they're good people. He just works harder than everybody else. That makes people jealous of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that. But I got a lot. I got a lot of respect for him. I know that. I said last week, if there was a Mount Rushmore of dirt late model racing, the four greatest figures in late model history, it's Bloomquist, it's Moyer, it's Earl Baltus, and it's you. Those, those to me are the four greatest figures in dirt late model history. You are the father of modern dirt late model racing. In I, my don't, I don't know what makes Bloomquist as good as he is. Uh, you know, all them guys got the same car. What do you mean by that? Uh, they're all hell far. Uh, it's a it's a the four bar car that we come out we, we come out with this thing in 1984 because we was having trouble with the leaf springs, and I wasn't when the car rolled out of the shop. I wasn't satisfied with it. I saw a lot of problems with it. But we went ahead and went racing, and I had Jack Boggs and Jeff Purvis and, you know, a lot of the good drivers in there. And, you know, we, and it was a big, it was a big step over the Leaf Spring car at that time. Uh, and hell, we won races, and people loved it, loved it, loved it. And, and that's what everybody's running today. They've got, hell, 36 years of, experience with it and that's what makes stuff run good you know what we see now though is in essence because of you is all it's but i think it's also so much different i think than what when you started things are just so different now than that early 80s and mid 90s time you're perhaps the ultimate expert on this how much different is a dirt late model right now than when you started building cars well they're roll staring them and my God, back in the day, that was a no, 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 no. But as the car as the car rolls, it gains push point or vector on the left rear. Well, when it gains that, it pushes that wheel down, and now you've got your right front dipping down. That's making the thing roll steer, and when it rolls steers, it gets more vector on it. Uh, it's just a combination that works. Now, I haven't made it work like they have. Uh, you know, we've done some of it, and it just slowed us down. But I got people with old cars, you know, 10, 15 years old. And I just I got where I've told them, I just run them like we used to. And uh, a lot of those guys is, you know, low-budget crate cars and stuff like that. And damn, they run fine with them cars. What do you think that is? How are they able to run good with that car that's, you know, I guess in nowadays terms, so old? We just, <laughs> well, we just it, we just go back to doing what we used to do. I've done those cars out. I never was a race car driver, but I started, well, I was 44 when I started, or 43, and... Uh, I run without power steering <laughs> and develop the front end where I thought it felt good and where it drove good. And 
the right tarware and and everything. So I developed that on pavement. Well, pavement you got to have eighty five percent car and fifteen percent driver. Today on dirt you got to have eighty five percent driver, fifteen percent car, and uh, and I knew that back in the time. I knew if something was good, it would show up on asphalt. I knew if it was bad, it'd show up on asphalt. And uh, that's where I've done a lot of my development. One of your former drivers told me, the guy that drove for you, and I talked to a lot of guys that have worked with you over, over the years for this interview, he told me that when your stuff was really cooking, that you said, and this was his exact word, CJ, he goes, CJ had the magic design. So I'm just going to ask you, what made your car so much better when you were in your absolute peak? What was the magic design? The best design we had when we built the four bar car, it was basically going to be a watch linkage car. And we got to fiddle around stuff and trying it. I told Tom, a guy worked for me, I said, just flip it back bar over and run the same angle uphill with it. And, you know, I'm looking for the instant center, the rear end of the car. That's what I'm looking at. I've got my head up. I thought that was the main thing. And so that's, you know, that's what we done. And, hell, we went racing. We run out of time, and it all worked good. But I wasn't satisfied with it. But as far as like your swing arm stuff, I mean, you wouldn't say that was, what was the magic design of the swing arm cars? Uh, the swing arm was, it, it was, the swing arm is just a, it's just a watch link. It's a cantilever, it was a watch linkage car. It's just a good, clean suspension. But nobody else could do it like you could. Well, people would copy the cars, but they wouldn't do the whole thing, you know. There are so many things that you learn through the years and you tell people about it and they put you in a bug house. <laughs> what do you mean the bug house? What's uh, that? Crazy. You <laughs> the know, nut house. Okay. Hey, you know what? I've <laughs> innovated a lot of stuff. Every time I've done something, they said I was crazy. So. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Try to put that into perspective, though, and I'm not asking you for money or numbers here, but hell, if you want to give me money or numbers, I'd take them. When Rayburn Race Cars was at its peak, just how successful was this business? Try to help me understand that. How successful? I was so successful, I just had more to give away. <laughs> that is a good answer. That is a good answer. So, I was kind of so hoping you'd... You know, you probably have to... Ask some of them guys out there, you know, how successful was Rayburn? Well, he spent about 40000 on me that one year. So. <laughs> oh, I've got some of those stories we're going to get to. Believe me, I've got some of those coming. Was it, I mean, was it more money than you could have ever imagined it, for, for a guy like yourself at that time who, like you said, just you never expected it to grow right. like that? Was it just a wild uh, amount of money for you at that time? You know, you know, I, I handled quite a bit of money, but. If I would go put, if I could go, if I put $10,000 in the bank, it wasn't my money. You know, it was just something to keep going with. I never looked at it like I had money in my pocket. 
and probably was way up in in life before. Well, you know, when you try to quit racing and stuff, you know, so, well, you know, I don't have to spend that money on that. <laughs> uh, if you, I mean, I got a few customers now and I do everything I can to help them. And, uh, but I never, the money just never was mine. It was the company's. And the more the company had, the more it could help the racers. Right. And we're going to talk about that here in a second. Because when I do an interview like this, I try to do my homework. Uh, I ask a bunch of people a bunch of questions, and I say to them, hey, give me a great story about CJ. Tell me something funny about CJ. Oh, everybody's got a CJ. Yes, they do. And it was almost impossible. I need five hours with you. So I'm going to ask you some of these about some of these stories I heard here. And the first one's with, with Mikey Marler, who I know you love Mikey. And yeah, Mikey loves probably. you like a dad. Yeah. He told me that you were with him one time, and you took, speaking of money, you took $50,000, $50,000 cash, and you put it in the frame rail of a trailer. Many years later, many, I'm talking six, five, six, seven years later, you were taking Mikey to Speed Weeks in February, and you said, you know, I just... We need a little get around money, you called it. Mikey said, well, he was joking with you. He said, well, he goes, it's too bad you don't have that old trailer with the money in the frame rail anymore. And you said, oh, shit, I forgot about that. You went over and had one of your guys take the tire off and cut into the frame rail. And sure enough, there was the $50,000 cash in that trailer five or six years later. Do you remember that? Oh, kind of, yeah. yeah. I remember <laughs> It's making me wonder, CJ, how much cash is buried around that property of yours out there. <laughs> I can tell you right now, there ain't a damn dime around here. <laughs> it just, uh, you know, uh, money quits coming in. And I don't know, you know, I've lived a very, very good life. And, and I've been through ups and downs and divorce and... And, and, you know, that's just worse than hard. And uh, but it's, I've had a good life all in all. I'm not very well educated. I've educated myself with trade schools and seminars and, and uh, some, well, hell, people exaggerate on things, but, you know, People say I'm a mathematical genius, but <laughs> hell, I'm not. I just, just no country boy that had to learn it the hard way. You mentioned when I was raised, we paid two dollars a month rent. Wow! When I was growing up. Wow. Where was that? Uh, Yosemite, Kentucky. Kentucky. That's right. That's right. Could be, could be pronounced Yosemite. How did you make your way to Indiana again? Take me through that. Oh, well, in uh, 63, there wasn't any work to do down there. And I come to Indiana to work at Arvin's. And I worked there about six months or eight months. And a service station come up for lease. And I scratched around and come up with enough money to buy that. And that kind of got me started. Then I had an old drag car that was just an awesome piece. And I raced that thing. 
made people hate me. <laughs> and, uh, and junkyards was the best speed shops in the world. I had, oh God, I, mean, I, I had stuff that was impossible to do. My dad helped me a lot. <laughs> well, that was back when you couldn't buy speed, right? You had to go do it on your own. Yeah. You had to make it, yeah. Yeah. I started I started drag racing when I was in uh, in sixty one and uh, got outrun the first time I was there. I was uh I knew I was gonna get outrun so I let somebody else drive my car. The very next week I went back and you know, dominated, I guess you might say. Just little things that you do, you know. And how did you get into dirt then? And I, I mean, I kind of know your backstory, but I think the people would like to hear it a little bit. That transition. I from... was, I was building engines in a service station. I had some equipment, and uh, I was building engines. You know, tractor pulling engines, and some round track engines, and a lot of drag engines. A lot of them, and most of them guys were record holders, and they done real good. Then I started buying equipment, and I had, well, I'd come out of a service station and built this house. Then I had a service station at that time, and I started putting equipment here in my garage. And I'd leave a service station from making $25 a day to coming here and making a couple hundred dollars a day with my equipment. And uh, then, you know, you know how stuff spreads out, but about every car we built, we built them in the stock class and blueprinted them. And we put everything to specs. Well, they really let them old Buicks and Pontiacs and small block Chevys, you know, I mean, they really put them going. And then I went to work for Bob Glidden for a while. And, uh, of course, you know, I learned a lot from him. And then I left there and went to work for another. I didn't. I just left there to be on my own. And But anyway, they talked me into coming to work for this M&M Automotive. And he was a guy that was real sharp and stuff. And had a pretty good reputation working there. And then I went into this business full-time as building engine. And uh, somewhere I got introduced to Carl Kinzer. <laughs> and, and I would do his stuff. And I'm telling you, we would pay 10 or $12 for a crankshaft. We'd pay $75 for a block. I would buy JE pistons and put in it. I would redo, I'd buy rods out of a junkyard for $2 a piece if they were in sets. We'd polish them, shot paint them, float them, put pins, put, put bolts in them, and recondition them. And uh, that's what we run in them. We run Eldor, we won it in 1980, first year that I built cars with a motor that was a 372 and it, oh my God, it had stock crank and stock rods in it. 
and run faster then than they did this past year. So would you say that you're, and we're going to talk, I don't want to touch on that in a second, but you're telling me, in essence, your introduction to dirt track racing was through Carl Kenzer? That's where we got, that's when we got into selling engines and sprint cars. So really, the one of the most legendary dirt late model figures of all time really got his dirt track start through a sprint car guy. That's <laughs> what you're telling yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> and he had Dick Gaines in the car, and Dick got hurt. And Carl wanted to put Steve in there, and I said, my God, I said, we don't need an inexperienced driver. But he said, I think Steve would be all right. Boy, was he. <laughs> How did that turn out pretty well for Steve Kinzer? What do you think? You know, I read uh, <laughs> somewhere there's a book here, and I'd read this article about Steve. He said when he started, he had Rayburn engine. He didn't have to worry. About, I mean, they went all over the country, not a spare engine. They had this stock cast iron crank and these stock rods, and we we used a real light piston and a real light pin. That made all that stuff stronger. But they won everything. And uh, but anyway, he said he didn't have to worry about horsepower and he didn't have to worry about them blowing up. Do you, Do you <laughs> still see Kinzer around anywhere? Do you still keep keep in touch with the Kinzer family? You're both Indiana boys uh, there. You know, I don't. I, I'd like to get out and run around and go down through there sometime. Uh, I saw Steve at uh, uh, that shootout that they had up Tulsa a couple of years ago. And uh, got to talk to him a lot. One thing that you mentioned to me, CJ, was your generosity. You know, you gave a lot away. Your generosity when I was talking to people came up a lot. And I don't want to lean too much on Mikey Marler's stories, but this one really illustrated it, I think. In 2004, Marler was down... You know, down... everything gets exaggerated. <laughs> well, indulge me here. Indulge me. Yeah. In 2004, Marler was down on his luck. He quit racing, and he'd gone back to work. He was done. Two weeks into that, you call him and you say, hey, come up here and get a race car. He comes up to you. He gets a race car. That's the year he goes out. He wins the Hillbilly 100. He wins Magnolia. He's on one of the best hot streaks of his young late model career. He's got fifty, sixty thousand dollars worth of cash. He calls you about a month later and says, "Hey, what do I owe you for this car? We got to figure this out." And you tell Mikey, "You keep the money." And he 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 literally was almost in tears when he was telling me this story because it said it changed his life forever. You told him, you know, it's better off you yeah. out there winning races and doing good. And I believe in you. I want you to keep the money. Why? Yeah, there's, I had a. There's 20 stories like that, CJ. Why Why did yeah. you do stuff like that? Why, why? That was a very common theme when I talked to people about you. Well, if you've got, you got a driver nobody's heard of, like we had Jeff Perks, you've got a driver that nobody's heard of, and he gets out there and does good. Or if you've just got a driver nobody has heard of, you can't lose. you got it all to win. So if we got this driver nobody's heard of, and... He runs terrible. You know, you haven't lost anything. Now, if you got a big name driver and he runs terrible when you put him in there. But I know uh, Mikey, when he got this car, it had, it had one of her motors in it. It was probably one of the better ones of the bunch we built. And it probably was 700 horsepower as a steel block. just made him a good driver. Well, hell, he's just naturally a good driver. The whole family is. 
<laughs> dad and three boys is just really good. How many stories like that are there, though? You don't have to get specific on them, but that Mikey Marlar story right there, I bet you got a hundred of those, don't you? Just like that. I never thought much about it, but I do remember now him taking that car, and uh, I know it won some $25,000 races. And I don't know, he doesn't do it. Moyer brought up something really interesting to me. He said anybody over 35 that lived in the Midwest or Ohio or Pennsylvania, anybody over 35 has likely driven a Rayburn. And Moyer was steadfast about this. He said 80 to 90% of the country had a Rayburn if you're 35 or older. There are those famous stories I remember of, of in the Midwest, CJ. If there was 44 cars at a race, 42 of them were Rayburns sometimes. Do you have some of those... Do you have some of those recollections going to races and being like, holy hell, I got 45 of the 50 cars here? Yeah. Yeah, we would go to Eldor and have half the cars there. But, you know, now it's rocket every car you see. It's, it says rocket on them. And, uh, you know, they always said every old dog has its day, and I've had mine. It's time for them to have theirs. Do you think Mark, do you consider Mark like the modern-day C.J. Rayburn? Oh, I think probably he's, he, you know, he's got, he's got good drivers. He's got big trucks. He's got air. He's got stuff that I never had. So I'm sure he does. He's a lot better than I am. I don't know about that. I love Mark to death, but I don't know. I think. Oh, oh, I do, too. He's always been great to me. One of the things you're famous for is uh, is this one comes from Billy Moyer too is trips to the tavern. He says, and he oh. says he says, uh, well, a new car's being built, or somebody comes up to your shop in Indiana and there being a, a new car, you're going to take a guy to the tavern, no matter who it is. You're taking that driver to the tavern back in the day, taking him to the local watering hole for a variety of reasons. But I'll let you answer why were those trips to the tavern with the drivers so important? Because Moyer told me. You really thought taking those guys to the tavern at night, it really mattered, and for more than just having a beer. Why was that? Well, you know, Bobby Knight, if you're familiar with Bobby Knight, was my hero. You know, I thought that, I don't know, they said Bobby Knight was uh, (laughs) C.J. Rayburn, a basketball, (laughs) or something. I don't know what it was, but he was always my hero. He was pretty hard. He drove a hard part. And, you know, if I had a kid that was going to play basketball, I'd want him to play for Bobby Knight. And, you know, let him know that nothing is easy. And when guys would come here, and I always wanted them to come here and put most of the car together, you know, bring their motor and put their motor in it or whatever they needed to do. And I would drill them like a Marine sergeant. And I would stay on them, and sometimes I'd have them guys hate. Then I could take them to a tavern or out to lunch or something, and they could see the other side of me. Uh, but uh, before I'd get them to them restaurants or bars at night, they'd be wanting to kill me. They hated <laughs> me. And then they go there, and I mean, I change, you know. I change when I get out of here and, uh, you know, mind on it. But you try to teach them the hard way. Damn, you got to do this. you got to do this this way, you know. 
and no tolerance on anything. It's got to be exact, and and you treat you treat them that way. Speaking another thing, go ahead. Would we would do? I had a bar over here that had hog nuts on Monday night, and I would take them guys over there, and they would have them things set out. Nobody knew what it was, and I'd have them guys eating them. And then I'd tell them what it was after they ate a bunch of them. <laughs> some of them would get mad at me. Some, of them <laughs> but I always call it that's initiate. Now you can race. You're good. You've been initiated. <laughs> Speaking of taverns, Jonathan Davenport, and by the way, Jonathan, I know you think a lot of him too. He credits you yeah. for his career yeah. during late model racing. Jonathan, he said he came up to build a car one time in the mid-2000s, and he said every night we had to go to the tavern, right? There's five to six stops, because CJ knew everybody in a 10-county radius, he told me. He said one of your, his favorite things about you, CJ, was you always had to have a little cat nap between stops at the tavern. And he said one night you were taking a cat nap, and he couldn't get you awake. And he said, this is, there's no GPS back then on phones or anything. He said, I can't get CJ awake because he's been socializing for two hours. He fell asleep. Finally, it took me two hours to find my way back to the shop. And you pulled into the shop and you hit the driveway. And then you woke up and you said, well, what are we doing back at the house? And he'd been asleep for two hours. I think you were initiating him. I told him, I said, I think that was initiation. What do you think? Uh, I don't know. You know, I don't know. You know, uh, I guess everything gets exaggerated. but. Uh, I do remember going somewhere and, uh, was with Jonathan or uh, the last time he was here he was with uh, Kevin yeah Kevin Kevin, Kevin Rumley yeah Rumley yeah one of your Yes. One of your drivers called you, you know, actually I want to touch on that for a second. Kevin Rumley is, you know, one of the smartest engineers in, in late model racing. Did you, when he was at your shop, I know he stopped by here not that long ago. Is he picking your brain on stuff, Kevin? Is he just asking you, you tons know, of questions? We got to talk a lot. We got, I think he was here for a week, but we learned stuff from each other and I know that I know the IndyCar people used to come down here to pick my brain. Well, hell, I'm the guy that learned more than they did. And uh, that's the way it was with Kevin. Yeah, you know, nobody's perfect. You can see stuff that could be better, whether it makes any difference in the speed that you're going or not. Uh, I always was, you know, looked at the front end of the cars and, you know, find them many, many things wrong with it if I could. But hell, the front end of the cars are not doing anything today. They're steering the rear. Theoretically, the wheel has got to be turned to the right going down the straightaway. Now, I've never sat down and tried to figure out the degrees that it would take to keep the car straight. But the wheel's turned to the right going down the straightaway. And then when we go in the corner, we just about straighten the wheel up and back in. I I don't know why the cars don't run faster. I've talked to Martyr about it. He says that 
arrived, the car's actually running sideways down the straightaway. And I don't know if that hurts the speed of them. Or, the, you know, they just... God almighty, they just... They didn't get into the 14s at East Bay till one night it locked down down there. But I know I run low 14s when I race, and I never was a race car driver. <laughs> well, you were a race car driver. You were behind the wheel. No, I drove a race car. <laughs> <laughs> There's a difference, no, I, huh? <laughs> I, I could usually have a better car. And then you develop stuff on pavement. And, You've made that pavement connection twice. Why is it so important to get things developed on pavement for the dirt? Yeah. Take take me through hey, that. Let me walk. Hey, can I hold it? Yeah, yeah. It's, we're, we're going full Rayburn here. You get that phone call if you need to. Sorry about that. That's all right. That's okay. Uh, uh, what was your question? I well, well you meant, you've mentioned the pavement thing twice. Why was it so important, the pavement connection for you? What was so important about developing something on pavement? Because you, you, you knew it would work on dirt? Is that what you're saying? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's the same thing. Well, you know, like I say, you didn't have to be a very good driver on pavement. <laughs> but you really had to have a good car, and and that, that's where I was at, and really had. Well, the first time I went off on pavement, I wasn't very. Uh, I got left about seven times. <laughs> Only seven. <laughs> yeah. Um. But you know, you know, kind of. Got a deep still today. A lot of track records on pavement tracks around Indiana. There, uh, yeah, wherever I run, and uh, a lot of world records we set on pavement. We was at uh, Toledo, Ohio, and uh, I said, of course, I had wings on the car then, and I'd set the world record. Uh, you know this. Ricky Ott, I believe it was, had it with one of them cars with a big block. It set out to the left side of the car with the wing. And uh, I beat, and he set that at uh, Winchester. And uh, I beat it two hundreds of a second. Oh, wow. And uh, here just a few years ago, there was another record uh, that was set on a little flat track and uh, it was set by a wing sprint car and I beat it two or three hundredths of a second. Uh, but I don't know why we run good on pavement. I just, you know, uh, I drove some on a real little racetrack, like a fifth of a mile and I couldn't beat them guys there but when I'd go out and get on the big racetracks with those guys Good and did do. You are pretty uniquely qualified to answer this question because all of the best drivers in the country have not only driven Rayburns but done well in Rayburns. In your opinion, CJ, who's the best ever? Who's the best ever to drive a dirt late model? You know, I don't know how to answer that question. I always thought when I started that Russ Petro. Uh, Don Hobbs, Ray Gutsy, 
always thought those guys were really good because they won about every race we went to. Then Purvis come along, and he was beyond real good. Uh, Purvis might have had better engines. Well, I built Purvis's engines, uh, but they spent $10,000 on their engines. That's what I got to build an engine, aluminum block, and uh, I don't know what kind of stuff we use, but that's all, that's all his dad said. I'm just going to spend $10,000. You'll have to help with the rest. That's why it's fine. But Herbers had better engines, I guess, than those guys had. But my God, we had a lot of drivers here. Her, or, uh, uh, that Rodney Combs was good in them days. He never, well, he run, him and Mark were partners and uh actually I think they were they were dealers for us. Uh you gotta pick one. I'm making you pick one. You gotta pick one guy. Who's the best? Yesteryear or today? I'll let you go both. Yesteryear and today. I'll let you pick two. If you go into the stuff that and here again, you know, where they was at, type driving it done. I'd say when I first started racing uh, and people started going places. Now, Petro didn't go many places, but Godsey did. And uh, he just, he done a good job. He took care of stuff real well. Uh, and there's a lot of people out there. Billy Teagard was good. Pat Patrick was good. I don't know. You're asking me a question. I can't answer. <laughs> now, now, if I had some way of measuring it, no Bloomquist, no Moyer, no no Purvis. Uh, uh, well, I was talking about way back in then. Well, Billy's getting older now. Don't let him kid you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, now Moyer was good. Purvis was good. Purvis. <laughs> And Moyer were big rivals. And then Bloomquist come along, and he's very good. I don't know why he is so good, but hell, the hell of it, nobody's reached the maximum yet. They're getting away from They're getting away from the maximum, the abilities of the cars. What do you mean by that? Well, they're going slower. And the whole you're saying the whole point of this thing is to go faster, right? Yeah. But look at the lap times they done. Well, I know that first year with Charlie Schwartz, he was a hell of a driver. Uh, the first year with him, he ran around Eldor all day long in 1740s, and they run 1780s this last year with no body on the car. And uh, stock rod, stock crank, 370 inches motor. That's about the best that uh, I don't know. It's just, that's a hard question to ask. And you know, a driver too, it's if they're in their environment, you know, that makes one guy better. Moyer was a guy that could go anywhere and race. 
if you took Purvis somewhere and it was a two-day race, Moyer would get good at the end of the second day. Uh, Moyer could go run. I don't know. If, if Moyer went just track to track, he was really I got a question I bet I know you can't answer. I've asked you who the best was, and you said you can't. Who was the hardest guy for you to ever work with? Who was the one guy that you thought, Ugh, I don't know if this is worth it? <laughs> <laughs> Dan Sleeper. <laughs> Dan Sleeper, why is that? I, he didn't know a damn thing, but he would argue with everything he did. <laughs> he probably had uh, some success with Dan, God didn't he? He would do the same thing. I said, you probably still had some success with Dan, didn't you? Oh, hell yes. But he was still a pain in the ass to work with, is what you're saying. No, he just, uh, I don't know whether he didn't have confidence in me or he just questioned everything. Or why are you doing that? You know, I don't know. <laughs> and a guy that all, I know you. All of, all of them is like your kids. You'll have difficult times with time after time. And, You'll have a lot of success with. I know that we're kind of winding down here, CJ. So something I wanted to bring up: a guy that I know you loved was Larry Moore, and there wasn't a oh, yeah. there wasn't a person I talked to that didn't have. They all said that. Well, you'll get CJ going, and he'll always tell a story. And the story starts with this one time with Moore. Well, this one time with Moore. Give me your favorite Larry Moore memory. Oh God, there's a bunch of <laughs> just a couple. He even the, he was probably the sharpest guy on the car. Was and probably one of the best paper drivers, the best paper driver that ever was. He knew cars and chassis, and he still does. My best Larry Moore tale. <laughs> I bet you two got into a few things over the years. Uh, he, uh, I don't know. He probably told you about the tavern. He didn't have it exactly straight, but it was more about me than it was him. I'd like to hear you tell it. <laughs> well, uh, this might be the same one he told. Us. We went to this tavern. He told it a little bit. He had it a little bit mixed up. Okay, go ahead. Oh, hell, I don't know whether I want to tell that. There's another one that run in my mind. I'll take either one. You go ahead. Uh, we went to this tavern. And uh, had a nephew there. Now, this guy was tighter than bark on a log. I mean, tell you, he was tight. Well, he wouldn't drink anything but Budweiser beer. So I'm aggravating, and I said, Jerry, buy me a beer. He said, ain't got no money. And I'm sitting there, and I just uh, was just love him to death. And But I'm, I'm sitting there, and I was like, Oh, I'll just fix this bastard. I know he won't drink any of that Budweiser. And I'm thinking about buying every Budweiser, <laughs> hot, cold can, bottle, everything they got in the plate. And I'm sitting there studying about this. This real pretty little girl come up. CJ, would you buy me a beer? And I said, oh, what do you drink? She said, Budweiser. And I, I told the bartender, I said, I want to buy every Budweiser, hot, cold can, Bottle everything you got with the name Budweiser on this place. He said, there's a lot of beer in the beer truck. <laughs> I said, I want 
calling people Paula's Bureau. Well, Jerry, my nephew, which, I mean, I love him. I've just aggravated him. And uh, he called for a beer. They didn't have him anymore. He had to leave. <laughs> but now, Larry told it a little bit better than that. <laughs> but I'm going to do this other one real quick. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm winning these races like at uh, Toledo High and Winchester, Indiana, and all the little racetracks where I was developing my stuff on paper. Well, they was having this race on a Wednesday night at Tri-County, Ohio. And they said Moore and Malkut and those guys were sitting up there in a hotel. Well, Moore drove for me before I ever drove a car. And, you know, he thought I was just a joke. And I uh, love him to death. And uh, he said, uh, oh, a guy told me this was in the hotel room, but let me drive they said, well, they said this, having this race over paid $5,000. They said, they ain't no use. Malkit said, there's no use going. Ray's going to be there. This is the first year I drove a car. Larry said, what? Let me drive that car. It'd be like shooting fish in a barrel. <laughs> <laughs> and I took him over there and wore him out. Of. Well, I laughed. And, uh... <laughs> How'd he take that? How'd he take the lapping? He's, uh, he was a good loser, <laughs> a damn good winner. <laughs> I always told Bob Glitt was a, show me a bad loser and I'll show you a good winner. Yeah. Moore was probably, and still is, one of the most intelligent people that they are. And I got this book and it's very well written. It's just beyond real good. Last couple things I wanted to touch on you because we could go, we could talk about Larry Moore all day. And this is yeah. the, the piece of the interview that, I, you know, I didn't know how to approach with you. So I just was going to go straight at it. There is no doubt that Rayburn Race Cars is arguably one of the two most successful chassis building companies of all time. I think you and Rocket, and at its peak, Rayburn might have arguably been the most successful ever. But somewhere in that late 2000s era, CJ, and you and I have talked about this before, things were no longer at their peak. Things changed. Others like Rocket and Mark really kind of caught up and got into the game. What happened, do you think, CJ, in that late 2000s era? What was the moment where things went from you're building 80% of cars at a race to less and less and less and less? What, where, where did it start to get tougher for you? And, and what just happened? What I, what I saw is... Uh, yeah. rock, uh, our drivers go to Rocket. And, you know, there's a multitude of them. Boy, you're, I mean, I don't know if you ever had a Rocket or not, but all of, all them cars are the same. Every car out there is the same except mine. You know? And they're the same thing as an 84 that we had built. But they started getting their drivers out of the car and telling them how much more, how much better a Rocket was. Well, Rocket, I guess, cost twice as much as theirs. Well, they had sponsors. Sponsors, well, if we're going to go racing, let's get the best. This one here only costs twice as much. And everybody, my God, back out. Look at the people whenever race is in, like Shannon Babb, like Boyer, like, uh, oh, uh, Donnie O'Neill. Look at all them. Just they won every race, 
and and then then when he got in four bar stuff slowed down. I'm telling you right now, cars don't run as fast as they used to. So you really think, um, kind of, if I ask, you know, what ha- what what started the the direction away from Rayburn? You just think it was like the advent of rocket coming in? Was it a technology thing at all? Do you think or? Uh, no, it definitely wasn't a technology. <laughs> it's a hard question to answer. I'd I'd imagine. I don't know whether I can answer it this way. Or not. <laughs> Go ahead, be honest. This is all about honesty. Go ahead. Well, if a guy went to a whorehouse and they got Sally, she's twenty dollars. Then there's Pauline, she is eighty dollars, and then they got Lavana that's a hundred and twenty. Which one are you gonna pick? <laughs> <laughs> I'm following your your I've reasoning. I've never used that before, but <laughs> I'm following your reasoning. I understand what you're saying. I understand what uh, you're saying. So you think it was but, kind of the new shiny toy syndrome kind of thing? I think uh, I look at Mark's cars and they're just very, very beautiful. The workmanship is so good. I look at the cars and hell, they look just like my cars, except when I get back to the back and I see them top bars running forward. And uh, then I don't think they look very good back in there. <laughs> uh, I know a watch linkage cars better. Virtually everybody I talked to said that your mind, you know, people said you're a brilliant mathematician. Everybody said, hey, man, CJ is still as brilliant as he ever was. So I just want to ask you, do you think as we sit here in 2020 that you can still build the best race car on the planet, even at, you know, 79 years of age? You're almost 80 here next month. I don't care what. If you don't have a driver with confidence in it, you can't build a car. And uh, and usually when we get down in these slumps like this, and you know I would get in the cars and run. Uh, I know in the late '84 I wasn't satisfied with the four bar car, so I come back and built an under rail car with watch linkage. And uh, I told some other manufacturers that had done this. They use watch linkage across the car so the rear end it do well. We used it, you know, on the axles, you know, so the so it didn't roll steer. And uh, that's when we built a real good car, and that was the first year I drove in the fall of '84. And I I know I went to. Uh, they had some kind of big race at Jefferson, Georgia, World Crown, something. Had a lot of good drivers in the car, and uh, Carl, uh, I guess Carl, uh, Rodney Combs was there with one of her four-bar cars, and he did have fast time, but through the race, you know, I've run more consistent, better laps than he did. I wound up winning the race from... I mean, Gary Blue and those people, it was just beyond, beyond race car drivers. Uh, But, you know, I'll run everybody with that car, and it was, but it went over like a lead balloon, best car ever built for its time, went over like a lead balloon. That's hard to believe, isn't it? Yeah. Just, uh. 
that people were so successful and they liked the four bars of whale. Last couple things here. These are four or five quotes from guys, and I want to I wanted to mention them to you. Here's what Billy Moyer said about you. He's the most generous guy in the history of dirt late model racing. Mike Marler said, he made me a winner and made my career. Jonathan Davenport said about you, he gives a guy everything he can to live up to his potential, and he did that with me. Rusty Schlank said about you, I would not be where I am without him today, period. What do you think when you hear that stuff, CJ? Makes you feel good. <laughs> well, you know, you know, you do everything that you do, you do it from your heart. But how do you get paid back? Thank you. Right. I learned something from uh, Bob Glidden, too. The media makes you, and that's people like you. But I run into Speedrome, and uh, they had, you know, they had good people there to do that. They made me a whole lot. Uh, You know, whether it was good or bad. You're very famous for your sayings. Arizona Sports Shirt did an entire T-shirt of all the famous Rayburn sayings. Those sayings included things like, race cars don't win races, people win races. And you've talked about that a lot today. Another one was, when quality speaks, nobody listens. Uh, One of my favorites from you is, simplicity is gravy. I love that saying. And my personal favorite, maybe the one you're most famous for is, stay right here with me, they'll all be back. What's your favorite? What's your favorite Rayburn saying, or is there one I missed that you really like? I always tell these people if it don't need to be said, don't say it. <laughs> uh, That's good. Uh, let's see. Uh, I don't know. There's a lot of them. It's got more meaning to them than just a joke. Uh, when quite. Uh, well, I worked quality control every job I ever had. But when quality speaks, nobody listens. What does that mean? Well, when you go show something, or I mean, like a racer, you can show something and prove to him it's better, or everything about him, prove to him that it's better. And he pays no attention to it till somebody else gets in it and outruns him. So you've got to show you got to show quality, I guess. Can't preach quality. You've got to show a race car. You can't preach race cars. Now the only thing I've got to offer is I got to preach race cars. I can't show them. Right. Right. And when we get down and out, you know, like we are now, I could get in the car and show people it was good. Well, hell, I can't drive anymore. But I, I haven't give up. If somebody, if somebody wants something, you know, I'm here to help them, and I don't care whether it's a competitor or, or not. Uh, you know, I like Mark, and I got lots and lots of respect for him. But wouldn't it be good to have a, just build a car and put a driver in it and go outrun him every once in a while? I'm sure that wouldn't be a, a bad final act for your career, would it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I hope it wouldn't make you mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> you... But he's the guy to beat. 
and uh, I don't know who's going to do it. Somebody's going to have to come up with a very clear mind and uh, I talked to Donnie Adams with Light. I, I told him, I said, I'll bring you a jig over and help build a late moment. You guys want to start building. Donnie's on all goodness. They want to build in modifieds. My heart's not in them. It costs too much money to build them. What? Yeah. Last question, CJ. You turn 80 next month, 80 years old uh, next month. So no doubt, as my grandfather used to say, your playing days are closer to being over than they are to starting, is what my grandpa used to say. One day when you've left us, CJ, what do you want people to remember most about you? What do you want them to look back and say about the great CJ Rayburn? Every day of my life to be the best person in the world. And... I don't think anybody can say I've ever cheated them or lied to them. That's what I would like to be. Oh, maybe it might have been Earl. I lied to a little bit. <laughs> My dad said you could do that, or you could steal a man's whiskey, and it wasn't sin. Those are the two things. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, um, I, and I think you've done that, and we just did a full hour together, so I just wanted to tell you that I appreciate your time so much. I would love to bring my film crew by the shop sometime and, and shoot some more stuff with you, uh, if you would allow it. Um, I would love it. Just let me know. I might sweep the floor. <laughs> and you better take me to a tavern if I come over, by the way. Uh, I would have to find one with hog nuts. To <laughs> you've told me your trick now. It's too late now. <laughs> yeah, but you don't know what night it is. True, that's true. CJ, I really appreciate it, man. This was a really good interview. Thank you so much for everything. Oh, and um, I enjoyed it. And I, uh, I hope to see you at the any, racetrack real soon. Any, any time. All right. I'll talk the rest of my life. I know, I know you would, buddy. Yeah, I appreciate thanks. it. <laughs> Tell the family I said hello, okay? Okay. Thanks, CJ. Right. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. And now a word from PPM. How does PPM Racing consistently produce such high-quality parts? They start with a good, strong design. Then they make it out of the highest-quality American materials, and they use the smartest and strongest techniques. PPM does this with every part they make, every time they make one. So when you're using PPM parts, what you'll have is just built better than anything else you've been using. That's PPM Racing Products. How cool is that, by the way? Some of the podcasts I do need two or three hours. And that was an hour. Normally, I go 30 minutes. That was a full hour with CJ. Uh, No friend zone this week. I needed all the time with Rayburn that I could get. Rigsby Report will be on a pretty regular schedule here starting soon as I interview the people that I've always wanted to uh, in the way that I've always wanted to. Just like today with CJ, man. That was... That was really fun. Obviously, keep it locked to DirtOnDirt.com as we have more original content than we've ever had on the website. Uh, Not just the highlights and stuff, but this podcast, Derek's podcast. Derek's coming up with a ton of original content right now, which I love to death. So keep an eye on Suave stuff. Uh, Don't forget Flow Racing also, our partners at Flow Racing. You get over 300 races on Flow this year, including the Dream of the World 100, which will be on Flow, all for 150 bucks. Think about that. 300 races, 150 bucks. Last year, the Dream in the World alone cost $200. You're getting that alone for 150 plus all the USAC and all the All-Stars and everything else. It's a stupid good deal. 
And it is our goal one day, hopefully one day, to merge these subscriptions, the DoD and Flow subscription. Can't say for sure that's going to happen, but I'd like to. Uh, but at this moment, just logistics are not allowing it. But uh, we're thinking about it. So that's the Rigsby Report for this week. We will be back soon. Thank you to CJ Rayburn and everybody else. Uh, and we will be back soon. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.